This is the Saxo Market Call, the daily financial markets podcast across asset classes and around the world. Hello and welcome to the special edition of the Saxo Market Call podcast. We are recording this on Monday, 17th of July, 2023. And it's a special edition with you, Ole Hansen, our head of commodity strategy. Uh, and it's going to be a deep dive into the energy market and some ways to to trade energy, but just in general, a way to understand the, the market, what moves it. And I think it gives some really, it should give some really great perspective, especially on those that are that are really interested in the space and want to get a bit more sophisticated understanding of the forward curve, uh, you know, the, the geography of oil, why it's why it's trading where it is, and so on. So let's let's just dig right in uh, to the podcast here, a deep dive into energy. And your first slide, you've just got a, a Brent crude oil chart. And but I guess what we could say we've seen is obviously we we came out of those pandemic lows. There was a that crazy uh, demand shock that uh, meant that the the price crashed even intraday negative. At the uh, at one point of the pandemic, and then of course we sort of recovered to something resembling normality, and then there was the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a huge surge there, and we've backed all of that out. So you could say, I guess you'd say we're we're back to square one in terms of the price pre uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. How can that be? Indeed, John, and uh, yes, that's that's true. How can that be? Because because uh, <laughs> uh, oil uh, is still getting to market, that would be a, the a, simple ex- simple part of your answer, right? <laughs> exactly, because uh, I think one of the one of the things that uh, that the war in Ukraine triggered was uh, a lot of sanctions against Russia and uh, and uh, especially by uh, EU or US and other other states, and uh, it led to beliefs that uh, Russia's uh, crude oil exports and fuel exports would suffer quite significantly, and it would uh, tighten the market and and send prices uh, sharply higher. Fast forward uh, to the middle of uh, 2023, and we obviously realized that it didn't materialize. I think one thing it it, it shows about the oil market, it, it's mostly a seaborne market, and uh, whenever something is cheap, someone will want to buy it, uh, given uh, given whatever uh, at whatever uh, risk that, that might be associated with that. And we see trade of uh, Russian crude uh, stay firm. And I guess you could say, in, in a way, why not? As long as uh, from the from those that are sanctioning Russia's perspective. Um, why not? It's, it's not a big problem that the oil gets to market as long as Russia is suffering a really bad price at their end, as long as it's somebody else that's making money somewhere in the pipeline. Because and it would be an own goal in many ways for these sanctioning countries to, to have to pay huge uh, markups for oil just because of their own sanctions. Exactly. And also, if, if that uh, oil did not reach the market, then uh, we would all be paying at higher yeah, price. Yeah. So uh, basically, we, we got unchanged uh, supplies of oil. We got uh, Russia paying uh, receiving a, a lower price than, uh, than uh, the rest of the world. And uh, that's that's the situation we're in right now. And then I think uh, this year, basically looking at the chart, that we've been sideways trading now for since November last year. And uh, just the last few few quarters here it's been an even tighter range and, uh, and the market has been basically been absorbing a lot of uh, different uh, different events we had a reopening in china which uh, fizzled out we've had uh, two production cuts announced by uh, by opec uh, just in order to uh, to maintain uh, st- stable prices i would say stable to higher prices and uh, so far that that goal has uh, somewhat been achieved and uh, right now the, we are still stuck in the in a market that's it's really not really in, well in doubt whether it's a demand uh, worries that eventually will, will have the day or whether it's OPEC cuts and robust potential robust demand into the second half that uh, that will set the set the tone i think uh, looking at what happened here at the beginning of july was 
was most certainly a, a tightening up market. OPEC cuts, especially those from Saudi Arabia, has, uh, has done quite a bit to uh, tighten up the market. We're also seeing Russian uh, voluntary cuts starting to have a positive impact on on the on the price action. So we're stuck here more or less mid-range and... Uh, yeah, well, let's see where we where we go in the coming months. Yeah, and then one of the things you talk about a tight market, and one of the things that is supposed to indicate uh, the tightness or not of a market is whether the so-called forward curve, so the price, uh, you know, for spot oil or oil right now versus uh, uh, versus some oil that you get delivered, let's say three, six, twelve months out into the future, whether that that oil out into the future is more or less expensive, and so we talk about backwardation when future oil prices are lower, and we talk about contango when future oil prices uh, are higher. Uh, there's also, now that we actually have positive interest rates, imagine that for for you know for the first time in quite some time, we have to also calculate the interest rate aspect of this. But there's been this weird feature that we've been in this so-called backwardation where our current spot market or, or next month delivery market is much higher than the forward uh, price. If, if that was supposed to indicate tightness, why is the price sort of just continued to slide, uh, one, one could ask. Yeah, one can definitely ask that, and at the same time, uh, one can also ask, well, uh, why isn't it uh, even even lower, um, or why is why are we still in the backwardation? So they, it got it cuts both ways, but um, looking at the the, the fall curve, it, it it tends to tell a story about the the market. We've had a prolonged period of time where it was, it was the opposite direction, where the market was trading on tango. And uh, where where basically the only way you can where you could make money by buying uh, cheap crude oil in the spot market, put it on a ship, uh, set it out to sea, and sell it uh, three months later at a higher price. That trade is obviously not uh, working right now, where you're paying the highest price in the, at the curve at the front. But what it does as well from an investment perspective, it basically gives you a positive roll yield because uh, whether you are invested in a futures market or in an ETF that tracks the future. You would uh, you basically have the same situation on a monthly basis when the exist when the front contract expires. You're basically selling that at a higher price than where you buy the next. As long as you continue rolled uh, market like this, you are getting a positive return every month. And you can actually see that if you turn to uh, to the next slide on slide four, where I just put in for example um, the uh, the one year. Uh, performance of, uh, if you just look at the front contract of Brent and WTI, that's the first futures contract there on the left. If you look over the last uh, last year or so, uh, up until this is it hasn't taken the latest move up into account, it doesn't matter, but it, it just shows that the, the front futures contract of Brent is down 27%, the front futures contract at WTI is down 29.5%. So that's that's a 25 percentage points difference, uh, which... which uh, which makes sense because there has been some movements in the spread between the two. But if you look at it from an investment perspective, basically buying an ETF that uh, takes the whole total con- total return into account, then the last year looks somewhat different. Instead of uh, having lost 27% in Brent, you would only have lost 13%. Instead of having lost 295 in WSI, you would have lost 21%, but still a gap between the two of around 8%. And it, that basically highlights that Brent for the last year has been a better investment from a from an investment perspective, simply because for a prolonged, prolonged period of time, it has maintained a backwardation, whereas we at from time to time have seen uh, Contango in, in WTI, which is a little bit more a landlocked uh, US uh, domestic uh, d- affair. I, I'm, I'm sure I'm upsetting a few Americans by saying this, uh, because it is obviously the old traditional benchmark for crude oil, but it is uh, the delivery point is landlocked. It's uh, at Cushing in Oklahoma, and uh, the, the the contango or backwardation somewhat alternates uh, depending on on storage capacity and availability at Cushing. Yeah, and then most of that negative return, if you look at how that's over the last twelve months shaped up, 
most of that negative return was already realized back uh, by late last year. So we've kind of been in a in a sideways market, really, from a total return perspective, for the better part of seven eight months. Of course, depending on where you where you entered the market. So uh, that leads to the next question. So we've got this: uh, what is the passive long investor's best friend? Which would be this backward-dated uh, curve, forward curve? Is is this the time to uh, you know invest in the market in a passive sense uh, for for the longer haul here? I believe it is, and uh, I think we just uh, need to look at uh, on on slide five. I just widened the scope a little bit there, just showing some of the how how the twelve month spread uh, is behaving across the uh, the coal commodity space. And uh, the one on the right is a little bit of like I've been playing with a crayon. But um, <laughs> as you, what's important is to see whether you're above or below the red line. And you can see most of these commodities they are above the red line. That's one massive exception. That's natural gas, where we've seen periods of extreme contango, which obviously makes it incredibly difficult to make any money on a, on a long position. And just uh, looking at the past three months, we can see how some of the how the development has been. And right now, for instance, some like gasoline. Uh, Basically, has a fifteen percent backwardation, meaning that if you if you buy gas if you buy gasoline now and hold it for a year at untrained prices spot prices, you would have made fifteen percent in a year's time. So uh, it it gives you some it gives you a tailwind that uh, that for for a number of years up until around two thousand nineteen was actually quite a major headwind because we had uh, most commodities trading in, in Contango. Yeah, and it's important to emphasize natural gas is a completely different beast unto itself relative to the crude oil market very very different dynamics indeed and uh, and and it's just it, it sometimes it's a little bit uh, frustrating to see because uh, from a trader perspective uh, you always like to buy something that's cheap and sell something that's expensive and uh, gas just continues to re- remain cheap and while you continue to hold along you just uh, lose on lose out on a daily basis and uh, worst case example some of the like the double ETFs uh, where you are, where it's down more than ninety percent over the last year. So yes. Uh, so the only way to make money then, uh, as a as a someone that wants to be a more longer term investor, I guess, in natural gas space, is to buy something like a natural gas company that's able to to sell forward contracts to get those richer prices, I suppose, out uh, the curve. Absolutely, much better to look at uh, at, at companies, uh, specific companies in, in, involved in that business. And you can say right now, prices price are very low, so uh, the. The, the the risk for further downside probably remains fairly limited, but you you capture a, a, a pickup. I would say better through through company owning a company company stock. All right, so now let's look at um, another way to look at this, uh, and that is how is the market positioned? So what's the market sort of the, at least the speculative part of the market um, that is trying to to eke out gains by either being long or short and trading this? Uh, you've got some uh, you've got some charts here on slide six. Yeah, exactly, and um, I'm sure in the oil markets, uh, most recently, there's uh, we have all heard about uh, some actors in the major actors in the oil market uh, having a having a rail against uh, speculators, uh, sending prices down to uh, levels that are not justified by our fundamentals and so on. But what it is, uh, what what the speculative part of the equation does, it actually it is actually does help provide a lot of liquidity to the market, and that's uh, liquidity is ultimately what uh, what everyone needs because you want to make sure if you get into a trade, you can also get out. Hedge funds and speculators, they are they are in and out on a regular basis, and they provide a lot of liquidity in the market. But what they obviously also do is they're looking for direction, 
and uh, I used to work for a hedge fund for nine years before I joined Saxo Bank uh, many summers ago. And uh, we were we were playing the market like uh, most hedge funds are. We were looking for momentum, so we were buying into strength, selling into weakness. So if the market was showing weakness, we would be selling it until the technical or the fundamental outlook showed that told us it was time to 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 uh, to turn around. So I think, and on slide six, I just put in that description that I say. Managed money accounts, hedge funds, speculators, whatever you call them, they are they anticipate, accelerate, and amplify price changes that are being set in motion by fundamentals. They are not the ones sitting in a in a dark room deciding that the oil price should be slammed and uh, they all go out in uh, in in one go and, and hit the price. This is uh, this is not how it works. But what it does, it does send us uh, an important signal to the rest of the market because we we get a weekly update on how how these speculators they are positioned in the market, and what we can obviously see. Looking at the price action since March, when we had first the banking crisis in in uh, in, in mid middle of March, and then we had the first production cut from OPA. So the weekly change in positioning on the right hand side down slide six, you can just see it's just been one roller coaster. So basically, you can rest assured during that period, a lot of funds been has been selling low and buying high, and that just highlights that this this is not a market where they like to operate. They like the uh, the momentum. They the like big the, trending. The big exactly. Trending they like the yeah. trending markets, and we haven't had that. So uh, so it's been a it's been a loss. Uh, making for period for these guys and I'm sure for most uh, people as well um, but but I think it's just uh, it just highlights that they they that they they, they play a, an important role and uh, and they have as much followers than the leaders of, of uh, price developments yeah and then on the next slide you're looking at the the basic supply and demand fundamentals and the, I guess the most important question which is going to be across markets, what the heck is going to happen with the global economy and are we heading into a recession or not? Because I guess that is the, the key component or the key driver of the delta uh, for, for crude oil demand is, is certainly economic activity. Absolutely. But at the same time, also, uh, considering if you're sitting in the, uh, I'll say, what we call the Western world, um, you are looking at uh, an economic slowdown. Uh, we are here in Europe. Uh, we're still worried about a potential recession in the US. But uh, just look at the the demand growth in crude oil, where is it coming from? And you can see on the right-hand side, these are numbers from the EIA. They are basically looking for for this year that uh, demand will rise by around uh, 1.8 million barrels. And you can see a fraction of that is coming from OECD. rest is non-OECD. And that's uh, big countries in Asia still growing at a rapid pace and, and will continue to do so for for a number of years. And uh, that that's really where the uh, demand is being underpinned. So uh, whether or not we are... We are uh, growth is uh, is up or down in Europe. Yeah, it obviously does make sense. It does have an impact, but uh, but the the big uh, the, the big nations when it comes to uh, future growth is uh, is outside of uh, Europe and outside of the OECD countries. And uh, and for now, the predictions are still for that the oil demand will rise in in the in the coming few years here. And uh, you have to remember that every time. Uh, for every every year, you uh, on top of whatever you have in terms of increased demand, you also have to find another five to ten percent additional barrels just to uh, to replace ex- uh, wells that start to run dry, and and that basically means that it requires a lot of investment to continue to to achieve those kind of uh, demand uh, or supply levels, and uh, that potentially could be a challenge in the short term. Yeah, we've all seen these. Uh, those of us that have delved into the peak oil theories have all seen these charts of. Uh, the different uh, the scale of, of discoveries over the decades. I think it was peaking out around the 60s, uh, if I'm mis- not mistaken, and pretty much declining since then. In other words, the potential reserves of, of a given discovery. And somehow we managed to sort of uh, increase production or have meant, uh, been able to for, for, for nearly until the present moment. I, I think the, the predictions for peak oil are, are within a few years, though, however. 
it, it is probably within. Uh, it really depends on who you ask. Some some say it's not until into the 2030s, and others are looking for it within the next five five to ten years. So uh, it it remains to be seen. But it, the, we cannot avoid talking about the green transformation and uh, or the energy transition in this regard uh, because that's really where the that's really where the uncertainty lies re- regarding the, uh, the the demand for fossil fuels. But I think uh, someone uh, wrote recently there was a question about the green transformation, and he said, "Well, basically, this, so far it's not a green transformation; it's just a green addition, mm-hmm. because uh, global energy global demand for for fossil based fuels has not really gone down. Overall energy consumption has gone up. So what we achieved so far is that the increase in demand for energy has been has been provided by by green transformation or, or greener." Greener solutions, but the but reaching a tipping point where where it's going to lead to an actual slowdown in in demand for fossil fuel, fossil based energy. That uh, that really remains the big question. But it's also a question that potentially could support prices in the short term because if you are a major oil company and uh, you are you are faced with these challenges, would you commit yourself to a multi billion dollar investment, which may take uh, several years before you can actually start pump oil out of the ground and making the money back, perhaps in the next uh, five to ten years? That's the big question, and that's the big discussions that probably takes place in these boardrooms right now. Yeah, and then we had the lesson from 2011 to 2014, where we had these mega projects, uh, ultra deep water, uh, huge, huge capitals uh, expenditures on hoped for big plays, and those expenditures often sort of overstimulated the services prices and just didn't lead to a much expansion in production. And then, ironically, you got this whole shale oil phenomenon, which was sort of incremental, uh, so s- small wells, but lots of wells. It's sort of like uh, just uh, you, you, you apply the pressure here and more oil comes out the other end. So a very different, very, very different supply function than, than histor- we've had historically. Yeah, and that's why the shale has been the so-called low-hanging fruit. It's been an attractive investment for these oil majors because it's it, 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 it the turnaround time is so short. But at the same time, it looks like there are signs that we are starting to uh, run into some uh, some uh, bottlenecks there, or perhaps uh, even a, a, a slowing production growth. Uh, so uh, so that's not going to be the same source of of increased energy supply in in years to come. All right. In the next slide, you're talking about OPEC, and we've you've talked about. Uh, so we've had Saudi especially coming out with. Uh, haven't they done unilateral cuts? Not just agreed on by OPEC, but unilateral as well. Well, the last one they did was a unilateral hike. That was uh, just when the pandemic struck in 2000, and uh, well, in March oh, yeah. 2020, because they were fed up with the Russians uh, just continuing to increase production at a time where uh, demand was slowing. So they did a uh, they did an 1887, wasn't it? Uh, not 1987, where they where they did the same, where prices basically tanked, and and uh, back in 2020, obviously. We we ran into uh, we we hit the pandemic at the same time and prices uh, we briefly saw negative price action in WTI so so uh, I think that was last time they they, they tried that but uh, this time around it's been a unilateral cut uh, one million barrels it took effect this month and they it will be extended uh, through August and I think what these uh, these there's a lot of numbers on this or uh, graphs on this uh, slide eight here but obviously you can see that the the, uh, we got the range, we got the average average production, the red line, we got the current production, the green, and then we got the dotted line, which is the baseline that they have agreed internally. And you can see the only one that's actually really doing the well. If, if Saudi Arabia say they'll cut, they do cut, and that's <laughs> that's that's that. So you can you can rely on that to be an actual barrel removal from the market, whereas others are are struggling somewhat uh, to uh, to live up to their to their target. So. Um, Will OPEC become a central bank of oil? That's obviously the question we ask. Well, you can you can you can argue when you control together with Russia forty five percent 
roughly of the world uh, global uh, production, then obviously do, you do have a hold a, a quite a big sway over the market as long as you can agree. And one thing is agreeing when prices are going up. That's the easy one. Another thing is uh, what do you do if, if prices are relatively weak um, and you have capacity to increase production further and you are getting a little bit uh, uh, hesitant um and you you want to you want to increase production but you can't so so for now it's it's working out uh, and uh, without these cuts we would have been quite a bit lower i think and then there's the irony as you point out on the next slide that when you have a saudi that's able to cut production um not because they're problems producing the oil but just uh, unilaterally or for whatever reason to, to to control the price that means that there's potential supply uh perhaps maybe behind some of the backwardation um the, the future oil prices being a bit lower. I don't know. But but in any case, as you point out, that means spare capacity, which means some kind of padding against uh, sort of a you know, crazy oil spike in prices scenarios, I suppose, uh, out into the future. Exactly. And and spare capacity is, uh, at, at, at certain times, has been a major focus in the market uh, simply because if you've got low spare capacity, well, who's going to provide the barrels if you have a sudden uh, geopolitical uh, event that uh, removes barrels from the market? We obviously have uh, some very volatile producers right now, most uh, most uh, focus mostly on, on that with regarding Libya, but uh, others as well. And we've seen the production uh, change quite uh, quite rapidly. So Having an extra, having a build, building a spare capacity is is supportive for or is helping stability, and also it basically makes someone. Some people argue, well, a production cut is not bullish; it's actually bearish because it re, it raises the spare, cap, spare capacity, it, re, it lowers the future risk to uh, to prices, and it, there's some truth in that because Saudi Arabia right now they are they're faced with a a one million barrel production cut, which they ideally would like to uh, cancel as soon as possible. But what happens if demand doesn't pick up? Then they'll have to go out and wrestle market share away from those who took uh, the production that they were they were not sending into the market. So, so uh, and that would that would add some weight on the on the prices. So, uh, so spare capacity is a good thing for 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 uh, for general stability of the price, especially uh, avoiding spikes. And uh, that basically also one of the main reasons why we. We see a return to the 80s uh, this quarter for crude oil, but uh, the uh, the upside behind that seems quite limited. All right, and then as your next uh, chart, slide 10 reminds us of in spades and, and the whole situation with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's not just that oil price. You and I as consumers don't consume oil. We consume the refined products, the gasoline, the diesel, depending on what it is we're driving. And those equivalents actually went way, way beyond what we're seeing on the, on the actual underlying crude oil prices. So I guess that's uh, where, where do we need to be focusing on the product side here uh, in this market? Well, if it's uh, industrial in industry that we worry about, then we should obviously focus on on, on diesel. It's uh, used in uh, heavy trucks and so on. If it's uh, the general health of the consumer, we should be looking at gasoline. So far, what we we've seen so far this year is that diesel demand is, uh, is is on the weak side. Gasoline demand remains strong. There's still a lot of pent up uh, traveling demand after the having been locked in for uh, for uh, for a year or so. Uh, but but as you mentioned, John, this this just highlights the. That one thing is what the crude oil price is trading at. Another thing is is actually what the underlying products and and the classic uh, that this massive break or gap we experienced last year, where at one point you were you were paying uh, two hundred dollars a barrel equivalent for your diesel, basically was at a time where where also uh, the the U.S. decided to release uh, crude oil from their strategic reserves into the market. So that basically helped send the crude oil price uh, or stabilize the crude oil price and start sending it lower. 
whereas the there was tightness uh, still in the in the refined product market. So uh, so one thing is so always be uh, be aware that uh, that that there may not be a complete. Uh, correlation between uh, between developments of, of the two, and sometimes gasoline is uh, cheaper than diesel, and sometimes vice versa. I'm also fascinated by this whole situation where if we do get a, a let's say a massive rollout of EVs in coming years, and it's mostly only in the passenger vehicle department, that uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, when you have a barrel of crude oil, there's only so much of it that can be transformed into diesel at some percentage of the barrel, depending on the crude, and that shale, for example, is, is almost purely gasoline. Absolutely. Uh, based. So what if we replaced a lot of the gasoline demand but still needed just as much diesel as we always did? It, it must be a confusing market to analyze at that point relative to, to the current demand patterns. It would uh, it would most certainly create a lot of volatility in the different uh, refining margins because of some of the, the scarcity perhaps in some of them. And one uh, one crazy one right now is jet fuel because we all talk about jet fuel demand is going through the roof because uh, the sky is cluttered with planes because people are flying left, right and center. But a re, but jet fuel is such a relatively small percentage of the barrel produced, so you, a refinery will not increase demand or increase production to produce extra jet fuel because they're left with a lot of gasoline and diesel that they need to sell as well. So uh, so that's why the jet fuel market is tight, not because the oil market is tight, but simply because <laughs> it doesn't make sense to produce that extra barrel of jet fuel because of the, the, the relatively small part of the barrel it, it, it represents. Do we want to get into crack spreads or is that going a bit too deep? I think maybe we'll, we'll, we'll crack on with that some other time. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's look at how to actually trade. We talked about the futures themselves and considerations for the curve, but there's certainly other ways to get exposure to the energy markets. Yes, indeed, and um, as as we as we highlight here, just just a couple of examples. I mean, these are not recommendations; uh, these are just uh, some of the the ones that we track uh, most most uh, likely because they have quite a lot, uh, quite a big market share, market cap. Uh, so that's why we like them from a liquidity perspective. And uh, just highlighted two of the top, which are just commodity sector tracking ETFs. So uh, basically, that's the whole commodity space. That includes uh, energy, uh, metals, and uh, agriculture. And then, if you look at some of the more uh, crude oil specific uh, contracts, you, some of those are mentioned there as well. And just remember, again, if the market is in backwardation, your your return on a on a on an ETF will be higher than what the actual price movement on the front contract of the futures market will, will tell you. Uh, so uh, that that's the, the positive carry you have. Otherwise, obviously, all the uh, the oil majors, if we believe in a future where crude oil price will re- remain relatively high and where they will uh, perhaps be focusing more on paying money back to the investors and actually going out and investing them, uh, then that, then these are some of the companies that could be interesting as well. And then just finally some some sector uh, some sector themes as well if if you're if you're more into that yeah the interesting thing about the major oil companies being those that are able to both uh, produce oil and create all the refined products that they can capture wherever the big profits are in the value chain i guess they can capture uh, some of that regardless indeed the exxon uh, mobiles of the world etc all right let's uh we're, we're getting on here time wise but i don't know if you want to pull any factors out that we should also be thinking of on slide 12 uh, just the general outlook for commodities and, and, and aspects of this, these, these general things we need to track if we're interested in exposure to commodities, whether it's energy or otherwise. No, I think we'll just leave it as it is, uh, John. It, it's one we use for our general commodity presentation while we while we'll see, see that we are perhaps still in, in a, maybe not a super cycle, but at least a, a period where prices uh, potentially could go high as well. And just remember when it comes to commodities, it's not just about demand. It's also about supply, which uh, in some cases are currently challenged. All right. Thanks a lot, Ola. We had, a, I think it was a really great overview of the, the energy and especially crude oil market 
and all the things you need to consider before even considering uh, some exposure to the to the space. So uh, with that, that marks the end of this Saxo Market Call Special Edition. Stay tuned for future Saxo Market Calls. Thanks for listening. This has been the Saxo Market Call. For feedback and questions, reach out to us on Twitter at Saxo Market Call or by email, marketcall at saxobank.com. <laughs>